0: Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son, and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments which I command you, all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of all good things that you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa, You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes, which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you, as the Lord has promised. When your son asks you in time to come, What is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God, as he has commanded us. This is the word of the Lord.
1: The gospel does not concern forgiveness of sins alone. You are justified by faith alone, but the gospel is not the justification by faith alone. As in, we've taken some of the solas and we have completely reoriented the purpose of the church to continually preaching about salvation over and over again. Now, it is important to examine your salvation, your foundations for whether or not you are saved. That's important. You cannot build on any other foundation except for Christ. But it is clear that if you are not pressing on to actually establishing the lordship of Christ in your walk, then you are a false professor of faith, that you are a false believer. And the Bible, especially in the New Testament, is overly abundantly clear that we are to press on towards maturity. This is what Paul says is his mission. It's not just to get people saved. It's not just to establish churches throughout the Mediterranean areas. It's also to present the church as a group of people who together are a mature body. And mature bodies reproduce. And I'm not meaning that just in a metaphorical way. Mature bodies reproduce. This is the way in which God has planned for continual covenantal succession. So what I want to talk today about is this twofold nature of the Christian family. And In fact, this is actually probably the beginning of a short series on the Christian family, which is antecedent to or comes before, um, sorry, precedent to uh, uh comes before uh, a series of home groups that we're going to have for for married couples. But as I mentioned, I want to answer two objections first that we're going to be talking about, two objections that may be subtly influencing how you will receive this And so I felt it appropriate to address the objections first. And then uh, secondly, these objections are much louder in the broader culture around us. The first objection that you may have is if you are a single person or a divorced person or someone who's been abandoned by your spouse, you may think that the Christian approach to family doesn't matter to you. And I wanna address this objection in two points. First, to the single people. You say, well, I'm not married, This doesn't apply to me. I don't need to concern myself with these things. That is totally and completely incorrect. In fact, the best thing you can do, single men and to some degree single women, for establishing your maturity to be able to be married is to begin to put these things into practice. How can you fulfill the law of God, fulfill the commandment of God to teach your children if you yourselves do not know? And so you you then find yourself in a situation, now you have children, and you don't yet know. It's very hard in the middle of the flood to establish the barrier. It's very easy to establish the barrier before the flood. This is why levees are built years before cities are made. They establish a levee, they test the levee, then they use the area that the levee protects. This is what you should be doing young Christian men who are not married and young Christian women. That's the first objection, singleness. The second objection is those who are divorced. God loves you and Christ died for you. And though God hates divorce, according to the book of Malachi, and that is true, that does not mean you have been released from your calling to be a good Christian parent. God is able to, through his grace, restore the years that the swarming and devouring looks eaten. And it's an absolute sign of faith that you begin to put things in practice for your children, even if your husband or your wife is not in your context, um, is not on board with these things, nor is, is really uh, supporting you in this thing, in, in raising your children. If you find yourself in the context of, of single parenting, this these commands still apply. It is not as if one sin in an area then dis, uh you know, removes you from obligation and all the rest of, of God's command and God's counsel. And so that's, that's the first objection in two forms, singleness and divorce. These things apply to you and these things are right to consider even as young people, even as young people, because every day where it's possible that you will find yourself in the context of having to teach your children. And even if you do not teach your own children, you should be ready to teach and disciple others. Make yourselves useful in the kingdom. So that's the first objection, that it doesn't apply to me because I'm not a married person or I don't have kids. Single people without kids, you should be doing something about both those facts. And, uh, you know, getting married and planning to have kids, that's the normative approach. Now, whenever we address these things, I, I like to throw this caveat. That's the normative approach. That doesn't mean that if you can't have children, biologically speaking, you're now in sin for the rest of your life. When we're talking about these things, talking about them as normative or what is a pattern, it means that this is barring other exceptions which are in the sovereignty of God, this should be the direction that your life is taking you. So that's what I mean by normative, of course, All the exceptions apply, biological infertility, uh, choosing to be a a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom. Those things are of course uh, exempt you from this particular command, but not in the sense of being a contributing member to the body of Christ. So that's the first objection. And then the second objection is this, that when I am going to speak today to fathers, uh, some of you uh, ladies are going to think that I am being sexist in saying that the father has a duty and a responsibility to God. And simultaneously you will think that this is sexist because I'm not addressing you, but at the same time, the greatest problem if you read Charisma magazine, Charisma News magazine, or Charisma Mag or or Relevant Magazine, the greatest problem in the evangelical family is not just, you know, pornography or raising kids, etc. The greatest problem addressed in the evangelical communities today is terrible fatherhood. So you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't say that God does not have a specific requirement on fathers and then out of the other side of your mouth say, well, fathers aren't doing their job. You have to allow one of those to be true. Fathers have to have a divine responsibility before God and that responsibility means they are culpable and also accountable to him. And also, therefore, they have a role which they must fulfill. You can't say fathers are doing a bad job if fathers don't have a job to do. That's the other objection. And that objection, as I said, is is louder and stronger in the broader culture around us, as we'll address in a few minutes. That culture says there is nothing different between men and women. There is no difference between men and women, not in function, not in equality of of person, etc., And that is simply not true. God has made men and women equal in worth and value. As we're going to see in our reading today, as we unpack it, he made them male and female. But that does not mean that men and women are the same thing. We see this today in our larger culture in many, many ways. The most recent example is the approval from the Joint Chiefs, their recommendation to allow women to be in every force in the military, even the special forces, even the Marines. Brothers and sisters, it is a curse of God to allow our daughters to go to war. And some of you don't even know about that, maybe because you haven't heard of it. That's fine if you haven't heard of it. But it is a curse of God to allow our daughters to be sent off to war. And if you don't think this matters, just consider the Selective Service Program in our country. There is coming a day very soon in which women will be required to register for the Selective Service. It is a logical outworking of the leftist propagandist movement to enforce their view of man, and therefore their view of woman, in every aspect of government. And because of that, their decision to allow women to be in every force in the military will play its way out into that requirement to not only conscript our sons at the age of 18 to serve the state, but also our daughters. And so this is just, that's the very most recent leaf on the top of the tree. There are many, many other leaves which are at work in this tree. That is, the point is not to hack off all the leaves. The point is not for you to call your congressman and get them to put in law that will never do this to the selective service. But that doesn't, that's not what I'm getting at. What I'm getting at is a pervasive view in the larger culture that says men and women are equally the same. There's no difference between them. There's nothing special about motherhood. There's nothing special about fatherhood. Nothing could be further from the the case. It is absolutely vital that we begin to, by God's grace, restore a view of the special calling of fathers and the special calling of mothers to the Christian family. And in that, again, this is is a for-Christian proposition. I'm not saying that we need to go out and battle on this issue in the culture the issue is much more fundamental and that issue is those who are either honoring God as God or those who are rebelling against God and so far be it from me to to say that I have all of these things figured out I simply want to begin to dialogue with with you about these things so that you would begin to see what God's word says about them And I believe that God's word contains a pattern that is applicable and must begin to inform how we live our lives as Christians. So that being said, I want to look at these three ideas. First is God's regency or his reign. God's regency and his reign over his creation and therefore his vice regency that he bestowed upon Adam. And Adam's vice regency being to do a specific task to to establish and uh, fill this creation that God has made with those who are image bearers of God. This is Adam's calling to tend and keep the garden and to to fulfill the earth and subdue it. Eve, as we'll see, is brought into that calling, and there is absolutely uh, no subjugation or uh, subordination within this married couple of Adam and Eve. It is rather just one of order and of hierarchy, but not equality. Uh, Adam and Eve, of course, fall from this, and so it must be restored. Adam was given the charge to take dominion. He loses that dominion, and therefore there must be a restoration of that dominion. Nevertheless, after the restoration of the dominion, which comes about by Christ, I want to look at how God chose to set up Christian family, being that there is a unique responsibility of fathers, and that responsibility is to God that is a responsibility for which they will give account to God on the last day. Just as the Bible warns us that not many of you should become teachers for they will incur a stricter judgment, fathers will incur a stricter judgment. God will require more of them concerning how they lived in their family as Christian witnesses than the mothers. Now, that being said, that does not mean I'm saying mothers have no role. And in fact, one of the one of the chief roles of mothers is to lovingly encourage their fathers or husbands to continue on in this but fathers as we're going to see from the text of scripture itself not reading into the text just literally when we get to Ephesians reading the plain words of scripture fathers are given a command because they will stand before God and they will stand before God with respect to how they raise their children we're going to look at this not just in Deuteronomy and Ephesians but I've peppered this teaching with ver- various verses that you'll see on the slides. If you're at all wondering about these things, you're interested in them, uh, there will be little things on the, scr- on the screen which say CF and then a Bible reference. CF just means confer or consult, and it's just a way for you to see wh- where's the background for this idea that we're talking about. So let's dive into it at the beginning. As we've been studying, God is a triune God. He exists eternally. He does, it's not he existed, but rather he exists eternally as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Father, Son, Holy Spirit dwell as three persons in one being. And those three persons in their personhood and interrelationship, they have a community of love, fellowship, harmony, peace, and this love, fellowship, harmony, and peace overflows and really explodes into a creation. And this creation is therefore the, the uh, outworking of God's love. God wishes to expand that love, to make his glory known. And so he purposes within himself to create a great wonderful creation and ultimately to invest himself by his image giving into one who would be an image bearer. And this image bearing he gave specifically to man, this triune God, this community in himself, has left his fingerprints or marks of community on all aspects of life. And we're going to look for the next few weeks at how he's left it on the family. The triune God invests man with his image. This is a doctrine called the Imago Dei that simply means the image of God residing in man. And by when, when I say man, I mean man and woman, uh, being made in, in God's image, man and woman, uses God's creation for God's glory and for man's benefit. It's better when I have automated brain system. It's better when I have solar power that can create energy. It's better when we use the Earth's resources for good and godly purposes, which are the establishing of life. We could get off into the weeds here, but there's a great movement today which is at war with God's command to multiply and to subdue the earth. And that's manifested not in simply an attack against the family, but rather an attack against utilizing the created realm. And again, we don't have time to discuss it. Ultimately, we must be good stewards, but we have to subdue the earth, fill it, and multiply in it. This is what God has given to man, and it's taken place. If you look around the earth, no other... Be a creature, no other creation has taken control of the earth in the way that men have. I'm reminded if you're a big fan of, uh, of the office, there's a time where uh, Dwight in the office, he goes with Michael to a dumpster and they're looking for something that Michael threw away and they're surveying this entire field full of trash. And Dwight has this revelation of man's power. He says, no other animal could do this. Maybe beavers, but not like this. I, and it's, it's a dumb example, but he's surveying this mountain of trash. Even what is a byproduct of our use of the earth is magnificent, and it's captivating in its scope. No other creature has been given this task to subdue the earth and to utilize it. We obviously need to be good stewards, but nevertheless, this is God's pattern. So Adam is given a vice regency, or a under kingship, if you want, to put it that way, a vice regency or a second-in-command authority over the Creator to subdue earth, multiply in it, take dominion and rule over, and then God begins to list the, the birds of the heavens, the, the beasts of the field, the fish of the sea. Every realm which God has made, Adam is to take dominion over that realm. Verse 26, therefore God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Again, here, this triune God uh, is holding counsel within himself. And he says within himself, let us make man in our image and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God, verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is a poetic couplet by the writer of Genesis 1, who most people traditionally have accepted to be Moses. An oral tradition came down and Moses faithfully recorded it at the time that he received it. And Moses is writing this little poem or couplet, which was probably in the oral tradition, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Sorry, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. This imago Dei finds its expression in twofold form in male and in female. It is innate within the image of God for there to be a unified expression through male and female dissimilarity and uniqueness. Taking dominion necessarily requires multiplication. If you want an example of this, I just would invite you to take a road trip, maybe to Missouri, and by the time you get there, you have passed through multiple states in which there is nothing but empty cornfields and land. And in fact, not even just cornfields, some pl- large stretches are simply still wooded areas that aren't even being, they're not being utilized, they're they are simply just forests that aren't, uh, they're not uh, at all harvested, they're just forests which continue to exist. At this time in our history, you know, approximately 6,000 years post Genesis 1, 2, and 3, if you hold to what I believe is a normative reading of the scriptures, uh, we still have vast places called Iowa that are just cornfields. And uh, corn's good. It's, I'm not saying to get rid of the cornfields. I'm just simply saying that even at this point, we still have not fully subdued and multiplied in the earth. There are vast stretches of land. that <laughs> are Therefore, if Adam is to fulfill God's command to multiply in the earth and to fill it and to subdue it and to take over and extend the boundaries of the garden, he must multiply. It is a logical necessity. God desires a world that is filled with his image bearers who extend his kingdom to every sphere and realm. Every sphere and realm includes culture, art, business, society, economics, mathematics, science. And eventually when we get done with that, we're going to colonize the moon. Elon Musk happens to be working on that right now. He's wanting to go to Mars. Little does he know he's probably ultimately going to be working for Christ because his technologies will be given over to the next generation. Anyway, the point being that we're colonizing. This is what our mission is. Our mission is to utilize creation. This is why you're not, after you get saved, You know, we don't just shoot you and then you go to heaven. Christianity is not just some escape out of the physical realm doctrine that gets you to heaven instead of hell. There is something that is to be done. There is work to do. And therefore, because there is work to do, there are helpers that are needed, and likewise, those helpers join in the work as co-regents together. God's intention in marriage is primarily the fulfillment of the command to be fruitful and multiply. Now, when I say primarily, I mean that is God's intention. I'm not saying that is how marriage is understood today. And in fact, I believe that we have done a great misservice. If you're wondering about that, I would refer you to Malachi 2. God's intention in marriage is godly seed. He desires fulfillment and multiplication. Verse 28, look at the order in which God speaks to this man. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Dominion comes last. Dominion comes last. You cannot simply understand this as some sort of cultural dominion. It includes, in the normative pattern, the command to be fruitful and multiply. Our culture, and by when I say our culture, I mean the American tradition. I don't mean Christian cultures that are redeemed. I mean the culture around the culture that we are creating in the church. Our culture has perverted the original intention and supplanted, that is, put something in place in the first place of marriage, and that thing is companionship. And the reason why is because we have rejected God's order for establishing the home and establishing children, and we have put companionship above multiplication in God's order. But I believe that Genesis 1 is a prescriptive description, or it is a blueprint for what marriage is to be. We have supplanted God's primary purpose with the secondary purpose of companionship. God's purpose in helping Adam to multiply, it's not, we, we take this Genesis 2 uh, passage where Adam is, is working on naming the animals, and we backport in an idea into Genesis 2 which is not there at all, and that is Adam was really lonely. <laughs> no, there was no one for Adam to multiply with. That's the point of Genesis too. It's not that Adam was really afraid to be uh, by himself or he looked at all the cute bunnies with the male and female bunny and the male and female lion and the male and female elephant. And he said, oh, where's my you know, companion? It's not companionship, it's subduing the earth because each of these animals that Adam names and calls forth have a realm in which they rule. The birds rule over the heavens, the beasts rule over the fields, the fish rule over the sea. And so Adam, as he is naming and seeing that he is greater than each one of these, recognizes that to do his command, to fulfill it, to actually obey God's command to multiply in the earth, he needs one to multiply with. God answers this need and establishes one who will not just be a co-worker, but also one to fulfill the command with. I believe that our culture's sin against God in this order, in this idea, has generated or given rise to a great number of evils, and these evils all predate you and I. That is to say, we have been born into a culture in which these things are assumed. One of them is no-fault divorce, which took place mostly before any of us in this room were born. The no-fault divorce laws which were established were to necessarily get men away from facing the judgment of their sin, again Malachi 2, uh, against their wives. And that which was established in our country was a great evil because it allowed men to divorce their wives without without necessity. It allowed them to do treachery to their covenant without there being a justification for that that treachery. That went on, and it took on another form, and that in form was really the sexual revolution in the 60s and 70s. And some of the history is just too large to um, to culminate here. But then that erupted into the legalization of child murder through the Roe v. Wade. These ideas have consequences, and you can look at this idea through the history of the West and see all of the lines down the river, so to speak, where the ripples continue to play out. And it's not embraced wholesale. It has been embraced wholesale. wholesale. No-fault divorce, the sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s, which was a logical outworking of no-fault divorce, gave rise to the legitimizing or the uh, toleration of child murder and has now become the uh, impetus for same-sex marriage, so-called same-sex marriage. Why, work with me on the logic for a second. If companionship is the primary purpose for marriage and not the begetting of children, then how can you say that this man and this other man don't have true companionship? It can be a marriage. That's the logical outworking. If companionship is the only purpose or the primary purpose of marriage, then the raising of children is secondary to that purpose, then you logically develop the seeds of that uh, planting 50, 60, 80 years later in same-sex marriage. That is the logical outworking of it. So, nevertheless, rather than being simply a cultural critique, I believe it's our duty as Christians to take notice of these trends, to see where they come from, to see the idolatry that they are birthed in and to war against that in our own lives and through our teaching and discipleship. Cultures which hate God are at war with his created purpose for men and women. Why? Because they retain the image of God within them. And cultures which hate God necessarily will destroy God's order for male-female relationships. This is why now that whole chain of events that I was talking about is degenerating into this idea where we've become like the Ninevites. We don't know our left hand for our right hand. We we now are confused whether this person is a boy or a girl. It has become an absolute moral freefall because we have rejected God's order. And to establish God's kingdom, we must necessarily confront those ideas and call them to submit to Christ. So, Adam was given a command, and that command was to tend and to keep the garden. Now, again, this is a pattern for Adam. This is Adam's commandment to live in the land. His call to subdue the whole earth required, therefore, if he's going to tend and keep the garden, to move the posts of the garden ever more increasingly outward. See, he was given two commands to subdue the whole earth, to multiply in it, to make use of it, to glorify God with it, to make it useful for him. And then he was also commanded to tend and keep the garden. Now, clearly, God is not intending him to go out in the world and work and then come back and take care of the garden and run back and forth. No, this is the same idea. God is wishing for this garden to expand and take over the earth. This garden, as we see in Genesis 3, is the sanctuary of God, a place where God would come and fellowship with man. He would meet with Adam, as it says that God would come down in the spirit or cool of the day. At the end of the day, God is coming to evaluate and judge Adam's work just as God had day after day established something, created it, developed it, made it useful, and then pronounced a judgment over it, calling it good. This is exactly what God is going to do through Adam. Adam is given a task. Adam is going to take hold of the creation, utilize it, glorify God with it use it for a different form, combine it in such a way as to bring about a better purpose or a better result, and then God was going to evaluate it. This is what it means for God to give vice regency over to Adam. Adam's call to subdue the whole earth required the extending of the garden, and that call was never rescinded. God gave Adam a helper that was suitable to him, and as we know from from our understanding of Christianity, our familiarity with the text, even though we can't go into it completely, we know that both Adam and Eve fell from their calling. Now, brothers and sisters, it was Eve who took the fruit, and Adam took after Eve took, but the Bible calls it Adam's sin. Why is that? It's Adam's sin because there is a sin before reaching out and touching the fruit, and most of us don't understand that because we We kind of, when we think of Genesis 1 through 3, we remember it in kind of a um, Sunday school-ish retelling of the story in which we, you know, oftentimes it's aided by pictures. We distort the command from the prohibition, and we forget the active command. We, We hear God say, don't eat of this tree, but we forget that Adam was also called to tend and keep and guard the garden. Adam's sin, which came before eating of the tree, was letting the serpent in. He permitted the serpent into the garden. and even turn, that sin multiplied into Eve's sin of taking from the tree. And Adam then again joined in her sin, this multiplication of sin. And it, God comes down to put an end to it, and that's when he pronounces the curse on the ground, the curse of pain and childbirth, and the curse on the serpent. And therefore, because those three curses were all pointing forward to a redemption, the promise of the gospel known as the proto-evangelical in 315. God immediately began to restore what was lost through Adam's renunciation of his authority by renouncing the authority which was over him. This is why it's important to see that God is ruler over his creation and Adam is a co-ruler And Adam is a co-ruler of that creation insofar as he recognizes God's rulership. By by overthrowing and revolting God's authority, he himself placed himself out of his own authority. God then curses that that authority. He subjects the earth as according to Romans 8. But that subjection was done for a time. Though sin and death entered, the call to subdue was never rescinded. And unless you understand that, when we get to the Tower of Babel, it doesn't make much sense. But that's a story for a different day. Christ, as the second Adam, has destroyed the power of the evil one. He was the one who crushed the serpent's head. Paul makes this extremely clear that Christ has toppled and defeated every power putting them to open shame on the cross. He nailed the writ of trespasses which were against us. He nailed it to the cross at the very same time. That is to say, he accomplished the forgiveness of sins at the very same time that he destroyed all evil authority, which usurped Adam's original calling, and for a time had authority on the earth. Again, we're getting far afield, but this is why I think Revelation, when it's talking about Satan being bound, that's a thing that's already happened, but nevertheless. In truth... It is only possible that those who are remade after the image of their Redeemer can begin to fulfill this calling. Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 15, just as we have borne the image of our maker or our creator, so also we will bear the image of our Redeemer or the heavenly man. This is God's pattern for those who are being remade after Christ, to take up that same authority. Now, that authority is not, again, is not one that is held arbitrarily outside of respect to submission to God. This authority is not a tyrannical authority, but rather a servant authority. Christ said to his disciples that you know that your rulers are called benefactors. That is, people acknowledge their rulers at the time in a cultural setting of people who are doing us good. Benefactors are good doers, benefactor, right? And, and so Christ is saying, no, the, you're not to look at your leaders, those who have authority, as those who are above you. You're not to operate in that sort of authority, but rather in, in my kingdom, the greatest is the servant of all. But the servanthood does not imply that there is no calling or no specific task to be given. In fact, servanthood implies a greater task a greater responsibility. So as Christians, as those who've been transformed from the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of light, that is the kingdom of the son of his love, 1 uh, Colossians 1, we must seek to bring about obedience to Christ in every sphere. That command to take hold of the earth was never rescinded, but it has been fulfilled and set right. It is for this very reason that we've been redeemed. Paul says in in Ephesians 2 verse 10 that you were set apart or you were reconciled to God for good works. We think we've been reconciled to God for dying and going to heaven. No, you've been reconciled to God and now become part of his active movement in the earth to redeem and transform and bring the effect of the gospel to every sphere. When I mean every sphere, again, I mean art, culture, law, economics, technology, business, finance, psychology, how we treat the poor, governmental organizations everything in the world is christ people when they hear what we're about to talk about about a man's responsibility before god a father's responsibility before god they say well oh you're just buying into that old notion of it's a man's world and and now we're better we know that men and women are equally you know powerful and have an equal role in society no it's not a man's world and it's not a woman's world it's god's world and God requires obedience from all men and all women. So let's move on from Genesis. After God's Egyptians and totally shamed Pharaoh, you should, uh, next time you read through the book of Exodus, I want you to look at this as an economic disaster that God is bringing against Egypt. After raising up Pharaoh through giving Joseph the interpretation of Pharaoh's dreams, allowing Pharaoh to multiply and uh store grain and therefore receive all the gold of the nation surrounding him because they bought grain with gold. It was so important that they would eat during that famine. He establishes Egypt in order to shame Egypt and declare that he himself is God alone and there are no gods other than him. And uh, Paul brings this out a little bit in Romans 1. He also talks about it in Corinthians. But this idea is that the Egyptians were defeated totally, not simply, for the idolatry against worshipped gods that were, after the form of creaturely things, birds, beasts. We know Osiris with the head of the eagle, and just a different of commands. Adam was prohibition and multiple positive commands to do the earth, fill it, tend to the garden, and work it. These positive commands and all negative commands, Israel now because of the effect of sin, because it has not been answered by the Redeemer. Now has a law that has tons of negative commands because the type of sin and the type of things that sin is bringing about has multiplied in this society. Israel inherits vineyards and orchards which they did not dig nor plant nor establish or cultivate in the exact same way that Adam received a garden sanctuary home which he didn't plant. This is a sign of grace, grace, grace. Again, the giving of the law is not the establishment of covenant of works. It is the establishment of covenant of grace. He wished for them to be faithful in their obedience. Not be obedient in order to be justified, but to be faithful or in fidelity to the one who rescued them. The Israelites were to be a special nation under the authority of God's law word. We have so perverted the original intention of the scriptures to think that the Old Testament is simply some set of suggestions or ways to be at right with God. No, it is God's very law word given to his people. This was the explicit fulfillment of God's covenant promise to Abraham and his offspring. Notice here this beginning of the idea of fulfillment of promises to fathers and their children. God promised Abraham that through his family, God will bless all the families. Isn't it interesting that we have so emphasized personal promises today, and we have completely neglected family promises? I have never heard a gospel presentation in which someone was called to come to Christ in order to submit and bow their knee in order that he would redeem their family. I've very often heard, come to Jesus and you'll escape hell. Come to Jesus and he'll give you a better life. Come to Jesus and he'll finally allow you to have a good marriage. I've never heard, come to Jesus in order that he would put his foot on the neck of the serpent who's been raging your family for generations. I've never heard that in a gospel presentation. I don't think it would translate well on the TV personally, but... I think it is explicitly the intention of the New Testament gospel to show that the promise is for you and for your children and your children's children, everyone who is far off, as we see at Pentecost every year. God's command through Moses presupposes, or it assumes beforehand, that faithful covenantal succession, again, is the normative pattern. That is how God has designed it to work, That is how God wants it to work. He does not want the church for all her life, all these ages that we've been existing as a continuous faithful group of people through the centuries to constantly have to re-evangelize everyone and lose them right away after one generation. That is not how the church has gained ground and influence and brought the gospel of mercy to the world. It is through the succession of faithful obedience family by family. This is what I believe is God's normative pattern. If that's God's normative pattern, then I think we're in trouble, as we're going to mention in in just a second. I want you to notice that these are the promises given to the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Unless you think that that's a weird idea, when we get to the New Testament, the apostles encourage Christians to imitate Abraham. When Paul is encouraging the women, he says, truly you are daughters of Sarah, if... He's understanding that this spiritual succession and natural succession are supposed to be one and the same. That's what's normative. Now I will make some denials. I am not saying that because your son or daughter goes away from the faith that you necessarily screwed up. In saying that it's normative, I do not mean that it is necessarily sin should someone come to the faith in their old age and still lose their children to the world. It is not the case that this is an affirmation that I would make, but rather this is God's normative pattern. Being God's normative pattern and his normative pattern of blessing flowing from generation to generation, I believe, therefore, a faith in which we are experiencing massive generational loss should be questioned. If it is God's normative pattern And if the church for the last few generations has been losing 80% of our young people, then we should examine the foundation and presentation of our faith, really the very core tenets which we allow to be in our faith. I believe that we should doubt it and seek to reform it and restore it. Obviously, the children of Israel, through neglect of God's commandments, routinely turn from faithful generational succession. Now, that being said, that's an argument even more strongly for this should be the normative pattern. They didn't uphold the command that God gave them. Therefore, they lost faithfulness in future generations. Now, if you want to take that idea, I encourage you just read the Old Testament again with that idea in mind and see if it bears out. It, it does bear out. Over and over again, it says the fathers turned from God, and then what happens in the very next generation? They either, if it's before the kings, they either have wars. The Philistines will come in. The Edomites will come in. Or if it's with a king, that king will pervert the nation into idolatry. This bears out through the, New Test- or the Old Testament text. It bears out quite well. Nevertheless, At the beginning of the re-giving of the law, Moses states that God's giving of the command was unto faithful succession. Now, look at these connecting words. Now, this is the commandment that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. Verse 2, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's sons. He says, here's the commandment. Here's what I'm giving you. For what purpose? Verse 2, that you might or that you may your son and your son's son necessarily presupposes that each father in the family mind will take up his father's calling. As we're gonna see, the father is given a calling to teach and instruct his children. And here at the very beginning of Moses's re-summary of the law, he says that this was done that you may fear the Lord, you and your son and your son's son. The implication is that we don't miss the son's son's son, but rather at that point, that son begins to take up the same mantle that his father had. By this, God will persist them in the promised land with delight. God does persist Israel in the land, but he doesn't do it with delight. He does it through many scourgings and exiles and restorations to the land, and great tribulation comes against the people because of their sin and their failure to uphold this commandment. Before entering the land, Israel must be reminded of the covenantal faithfulness of God so that they would be covenantally faithful in response to him. Consider the application of the first and greatest commandment. Jesus is asked the question, what is the first and greatest commandment? commandment?" He replies, the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In saying that commandment, he is quoting from the Septuagint, the Greek copy of the scriptures, which they used at that time in their synagogue system, and look at the fulfillment of the first commandment. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Verse four, verse five, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now, I don't know about you, those sound like nice words. Loving the Lord with my heart, that's awesome, I love. Heart stuff, that's great. I'm totally fine with that. Love the Lord with all your soul. I don't know. I mean, do I really need to submit my emotions and my feelings to the Lord? Do I really need to love the Lord with a real affection for the Lord? Yes, absolutely. But my might, I don't know. I'm not really into that part. (laughs) Personally, just to be honest, you know, like I'm all for zealous. It includes not just my might physically before I get tired, but all my resource Everything that my might produces, all my work, all the fruits of my labors, all of it is to be given to God in the first commandment. And this first commandment finds its expression in two forms. In verse 6, these words that I command you shall be on your heart. This is part of the first commandment. This isn't a secondary commandment. And that other form of fulfillment is verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Teaching them to your children diligently requires or implies active obedience with what seems to be maybe unspiritual planning, you know, actually making a plan to do this or setting up a time in your home which you devote to do this. Diligently teaching your children does not mean casually mentioning the things of the faith once a week. It means a daily a daily putting these things forth before your children. Verse seven, you shall teach them diligently to your children. And here's where Moses begins to unpack what he means by diligently teaching. And he gives the, the, the clear command that it's an everyday thing. In fact, it's an every hour thing, according to this verse. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house. I do a lot of sitting in my house. It's one of my favorite things. I bought this couch a few months ago. Man, let me tell you. And when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, the life of the family is supposed to be a life that is surrounded by the teachings and commandments of God's law word. The commandment to love the Lord finds application in two commands, to have his word written on your heart. And from that place of having his word written on your heart, you then retell. And according to Christ, the mouth then speaks out of the abundance, which fills the heart. And you then overflow from that love of the lord which is true authentic and affectionate and that becomes the way in which you teach your children as fathers therefore we have a moral obligation from god a moral obligation this is not if you want to have a good christian home teachings this is not if you want to have a good marriage teachings this is god gave a command to fathers to diligently teach their sons and daughters. Our homes, therefore, are to be places in which children are raised in the gospel. Now, why do I say raised in the gospel? Because I believe that this command in Deuteronomy 6 to tell your children the mighty deeds of God still continues and applies. I'm going to say that by implication and also by restatement. There's two ways we know that this still applies. Verse 20, when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and rules? Why did God give us the law? This is what the son is going to ask his father. As as the son is being taught by his father, he's hearing these various things. He's going to ask the question, what is the purpose behind the law? And that son is going to be given a good answer by his father, and it is gospel, gospel, gospel. This is not a reestablishing of the law of Moses to seek to justify ourselves by the doing of the law. That was never the original intention of God's giving the law it was given in order that they would create a culture of family succession in which each generation would be reminded of the mighty deeds of God in bringing them out of Egypt. And this is the great command by all the prophets of of old to Israel over and over and over again is to remember, remember God's faithfulness, remember how he brought you out, remember his covenant. And that remembrance was built into the family unit. Look at verse 21, then you shall say to your sons, Uh, to your son we were slaves in Egypt this is God's retelling through the father what has taken place in the calling and election of Israel we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand it goes on to describe a little bit of what he did and that's ultimately included but a summary statement in verse 21 is fine notice what happens here think about this Moses is telling this initial generation and this initial generation at Deuteronomy some of them were only children when this happened when when God actually brought about the exodus but think forward for just a, a minute for a few generations God is telling these Israelites to say we were slaves in Egypt they're to understand themselves as being in Egypt when their fathers were in Egypt and they begin to, spe- uh, to speak of, about God's mighty deeds as being done to them. That this salvation that God wrought for Israel, although they were not even yet born, they were considered as they would themselves utter, I was a slave in Egypt. And in fact, actually, if you study this out, this, this came about through the Passover tradition in Israel when the, the father would pray and you know, begin the, begin the uh, festivities The prayer would begin with, when I was a slave in Egypt. I mean, that's just a beautiful tradition, and I think it's God's faith-filled tradition. And this, I believe, is the normative pattern. You should be telling your children that we were slaves and captives to sin. God's deliverance from Israel was a shadow of the substance. And when I say shadow, I mean the next time you read the book of Exodus, and you see God bringing gnats and bringing hail and bringing fire and turning the river to blood and causing the death of the firstborn of those who hate him, I want you to see that that is a shadow of a greater substance which was wrought at the cross of Christ. That Christ defeated the powers of evil in a more sufficient, more powerful, more demonstrable way than what happened in time old of Egypt I, I want you to see that that is a much greater and glorious application. Now, I want to answer again a common objection. John, we're not under the law we're under grace. I agree. I agree that we're under grace, and we're not trapped under the law. We're not bondage, we're not in bondage to death and sin anymore. Amen. Therefore, all the more, we have a duty and an obligation. Over and over again, the New Testament says that we have a greater covenant, and if we have a greater covenant, then how much more power? ought we to have in fulfilling God's original intention? Surely the Christian has gone through a greater deliverance in Christ. I I wanted to leave this as just a note, but I actually want to turn there. You don't have to turn there uh, because it'll take too long for us to wait for everyone to get there. I just want to bring about an idea. I hope to nail, put the final nail in the coffin for this idea that if anything remains at work in the law word of God in the new covenant, it has to be restated. I don't believe that's true. I believe that the cultural provisions which separated Israel from the rest of the people, namely their dress, their cultural celebrations, their physical food laws, those have been clearly set aside. But the moral application of God's law remains in full force. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, I'm going to read them to you. Now, if the ministry of death, that is the ministry given through Moses, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face, when Moses would come down from Sinai or when he would come out of the tabernacle, he would put a veil over his face because they could not, the the Israelites were terrified at this divine glowing that was on Moses' face. This is the backstory to this verse seven. Uh, If this ministry of death came with such glory, which was being brought to an end, verse eight, will not the ministry of the spirit have even more glory? It is the case that the ministry of the spirit has more glory. There is a greater power at work in the new covenant and that power is the Holy Spirit being unleashed to indwell those who have been redeemed. Jesus himself said that the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. Who did he say John the Baptist was? The greatest of all the prophets. If anything's the case, over and over again, the New Testament makes it clear, Christ's teachings on the law himself says, you know that you're not supposed to commit adultery, but I tell you that if you commit adultery in your heart, it is as if you've committed adultery. If anything, Christ says the law is way more severe than the Israelites were reading. And by severe, I do not mean harsh or hard to do, I mean impossible to do. Only able to be done by those who are given the spirit of God. Therefore, if we are in this greater covenant, If it is a more glorious and wonderful then how much more ought we to obey the commands of God? Now, if you don't buy my implication argument, if you don't buy my argument that by implication, this continues and it must be restated, I'll give you a restatement of this. Ephesians 6, one through four, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Why are they told to obey? The assumption is that their parents are telling them things concerning obedience. And it's not just clean up your room and do the dishes. It's follow God. It's do devotions with the family. It's do good works. Over and over again, when I was raised, I was constantly given chores by my dad to do for people who weren't in our family. I remember this one time, not to I'm in no way is this a bad this is actually a really good example. I was given this task to rake a lawn for this very wonderful old saintly lady who I think is now you know passed away. But it was it was a lawn way bigger than my dad's, and it hadn't been raked for three years. And it it. it took all day, like eight hours. And at the end, she gave me a five dollar bill. <laughs> it, I've worked it out, and it's like I was earning like ten cents for every ten minutes. Like it was like a cent a minute. I mean, it was it was bad. It would be illegal in Obama's America. Uh, nevertheless, I was routinely given commands to do things that were good works in order to learn that it's better to to give than receive. It's better to serve than be served. This is what parents ought to be doing. Verse two, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. Verse three, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Look at the quotes. Where's he quoting from? Deuteronomy six. Paul says that this remains in full force. There is no doing away with the law. Verse 4, fathers. This is why I say fathers have a unique command because Paul wasn't raised in post-lib-fem 1975 America. He doesn't say fathers and mothers because we're all talking about the same thing here because men and women aren't different. Paul commands fathers. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. That's the negative command. How do you provoke your children to anger? By setting them up with no worldview to understand anything of life. That's one way. The other way is the more normative way that we consider, you know, being mean to your children, beating them, uh, yelling at them, etc. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. In the King James, it says wrath. I think that's a much, much more appropriate verse or translation, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Again, in the King James, it's fear and admonition. And fear is much more important than discipline. You are not simply to tell your kids about the faith in a way that you assume that they will make a neutral choice, that they're in a neutral setting and they'll either follow Christ or not. You need to impress upon your children, we have an obligation to be faithful to the covenant because we were bought with a price. Christ's blood is too precious to allow our children to drift away from the faith. Hebrews 6, the warnings in Hebrews 6 is are 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 too too appropriate and too clear. Paul reiterates this command, showing that it remains a duty of Christian fathers. Now, again, if you're a single mom, I am not intending to say that you do not have a deeply profound. Relationship with your child in bringing them up in the things of the faith. In fact, the New Testament has a wonderful example, one that you would do well to pursue. That is, Timothy himself was raised by the faith of his grandmother and his mother, being uh, being one who had a father who was far from God and uh, not a Yahweh worshiper and not a Christian. Nevertheless, we're talking about things that are normative. If you think that just because you are either divorced or a single mom or a single dad, that none of this applies to you, it actually applies all the more and you must take more intentional steps to fulfill this in a way that bears fruit, in a way that produces the result with your children. Although this calling may seem daunting, this command from the Lord is not burdensome. What more could you want? Of all the things that you own or have, or skills that you have, or hobbies that you have, what thing could you want more than to faithfully transmit the faith to your children and to see them raised up in the things of God? And my thought is this, in an age of deep spiritual uh, confusion, in an age in which uh, the moral uh, level of the culture is sinking quickly, what more precious promise could there be in the New Testament than the fact that we don't have to hope against hope that our children should be in the faith. But rather, if we do things according to God's order and structure, if we orient the family as trying to be obedient to the kingship of Christ, then it is normative that he will cause our children to maintain in the faith. Acts 2.39, again, Peter says the promise, not, the, not doing the law, not, do, not earning God's favor, the promise of the father, the promise given to Abraham of old, the promise brought about and fulfilled in Christ, the promise given by the church reading the word faithfully through the ages is for you and for your children. That is wonderful and sweet and precious. Now, nevertheless, we know that sin exists in the world. We know that children fall away from the faith of their parents, but that is not what it is supposed to be. And by God's grace, I believe there is a greater standard and that standard is nothing other than fulfilling the word of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son and his great redemption that he purchased for us. We pray that you would deliver us, Lord, from ideas which blind us to what is clearly in your scripture that our children should continue on in the faith. We pray that you would forgive us, Lord, of our cultural neglect and hatred of children. We pray that you would end abortion in this country and that you would bring about about swift uh, justice for those who are trampled in death. Lord, we pray that you would restore the honor of marriage in the church, that you would deliver us from sexual sins and covenant breaking, that you would give us an ability to think about these things biblically. We pray that, Lord, you would begin to bring judgment at the house of God, that you would allow us to be like those who weep between the porch and the altar, that you would give us a great understanding of the calling of Christ, that we would see him as king and honor him as such. We pray, Lord, that you would allow us by your spirit to not buy into the devil's accusation of condemnation in these things. We pray, Lord, that for those who feel like they've already had bad examples in this area, that you would give them the promise of future growth, that they would understand that you can redeem the time and you can bring about maturity. We pray, God, that you would renew our church and really the church in our country in this area, that you would give us wisdom that we would not be fruitless and that we would not be futile. In Jesus' name,
0: amen.